From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, December 5th. I'm Marco Werman. The protests over Egypt's new draft constitution turned violent. This opposition demonstrator blames the Muslim Brotherhood. They actually began the clashes, breaking things and hitting. And suddenly uh, we started uh, hearing uh, gunshots. And later, the great London smog of 1952. We used to wear petticoats and all the hems would be black and their hair was grimy and, and you, you could feel the grit in the air. It was just choking and dreadful. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The political unrest in Egypt is growing more intense. Today, there were violent clashes between opponents and supporters of President Mohamed Morsi outside the presidential palace in Cairo. Dozens of people were injured. The Egyptian opposition is demanding that Morsi roll back the decree he enacted, which gave himself sweeping new powers, and that he cancel the upcoming referendum on a new constitution written largely by Morsi's Islamist supporters. But the president and his government are not backing down. Myrna Elbari is a student and a protester in Cairo. We spoke with her earlier, just after she left the demonstrations at the palace in the Heliopolis district of the capital. We were protesting by the presidential palace uh, as yesterday, but uh, the situation got intense as uh, the supporters, Morsi supporters and many Muslim brothers joined the scene. The clashes started as they were chanting and then they they actually began the clashes uh, first by hitting. They uh, they broke through the tents that we were demonstrating in, and started breaking things and hitting many demonstrators. Luckily, I wasn't injured, but many of my friends were. And suddenly, uh, we started uh, hearing um, uh, bullets, uh, gunshots, and uh, actually uh, three people died. This, this was confirmed by El Ganzuri Hospital, uh, and they were shot by the Muslim brothers. Yeah, we have not seen any reports of this uh, fr- from news agencies, but were opposition protesters fighting back against the Muslim brothers? Yes, they were fighting back. Uh, some, some people were like hitting with objects, for instance, the security fences and maybe some, some rocks from the ground, but uh, no protester from the opposition had any weapons. Uh, they even had uh, knives. They had Swiss knives. They were stabbing people in the faces. The protesters did not have any kind of weapons. You, you saw this that. yourself? Yes, I saw this myself. And uh, one, uh, he's a very uh, known opposition figure. He's called Ahmed Douma. Uh, he was actually stabbed in front of me in his face. Um, so uh, tell me, why are you protesting, Myrna? I'm protesting against the presidential de- decree because he immunized the Constitutional Assembly 
which had President completely Morsi. no national no national consensus and therefore were against the draft constitution that it should be put on, on referendum that way. So President Morsi has promised to hand back power once the vote happens. I mean, you don't you don't have faith in him that he'll do that? No, the problem is the people, uh, they don't have any trust. That was Myrna Albari, a student in Cairo, who was one of those protesting against President Morsi today. Tarek Massoud is a professor at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He says from the Muslim Brotherhood's point of view, the protesters in Cairo are trying to turn back the will of the Egyptian people. They say, for decades, liberals have always questioned our Islamist commitment to democracy. And so we have tried desperately to show that we're committed to democracy. We've run in elections and we've won elections. And now suddenly democracy isn't good enough for you. So that's how they are framing this. Of course, it's incorrect. And of course, what they're not realizing is that democracy is valuable only in as much as it provides guarantees of liberty for everybody, not just those in the majority. It's hard to know what uh, President Morsi is thinking right now, aside from how many more Muslim Brotherhood members can he get out in Tahrir Square to counter the numbers of of opposition. But how long can the president continue to wait this out and resist making concessions? It's not clear that President Morsi is yet willing to or ready to uh, compromise with his opposition. It really looks like the game that he wants to play is a show of strength on the streets. This was also the game that Mubarak played in the famed uh, Battle of the Camel, where Mubarak uh, allies brought out thugs to beat up protesters during the revolution in 2011. And that was really the moment where Mubarak lost any residual legitimacy he may have had. And so the worry is that this happening now, but the Muslim Brotherhood playing the role of the old NDP could have a similar uh, legitimacy breaking effect. Now, you've written, Tarek Massoud, that a greater percentage of Americans were literate during the Civil War than Egyptians are today. Are less literate Egyptians, uh, I gather a group that's mostly in the countryside, do they support President Morsi? Are they behind him? The illiteracy rate in Egypt is about 35 percent. Egypt is also a pretty poor country. I mean, you would have to go back to the Spanish-American War to find a similar level of income, average income in the United States that Egypt has now. So the odds of getting a kind of liberal democracy in Egypt were always very long, regardless of who takes over, whether it was Islamists or uh, Mohamed Morsi's opponent in the presidential election, who is an old Mubarak crony, whoever kind of comes to power is going to face this society in which the vast majority of people tend to be pretty acquiescent to uh, authority and in which the capacity of the society to constantly produce challenges to regimes that overstep their authority is limited. So I don't know if the vast countryside supports Mohamed Morsi or is merely indifferent to him, but the fact is that the phenomenon that we're observing now, which are these protests, are largely urban. And Egypt is still a majority rural country. Is there any constructive role uh, Washington might play in this, as far as you can see? Washington could put pressure on Mohamed Morsi to make some concessions, but I really see the obstacles being much bigger than what the United States can influence. I mean, this is a a cleavage between liberals and uh, Islamists that is very deep. And uh, even if 
somehow Egyptians get past this immediate hurdle, I, I don't see this cleavage going away. Let me just give you an example. Let's say Mohammed Morsi tomorrow came out and conceded to every single one of the demands that the liberals are making, and they happen to be demands that I agree with. But let's say he conceded to every one of those demands. Well, then you could imagine that his hardcore supporters, uh, including Salafists, who may even believe that the current constitution isn't Islamic enough, they're going to be very disappointed. And we've already seen dark hints from some quarters of, uh, you know, assassinations or violence that they would take part in if this constitution didn't pass. So my sense is that regardless of how this ends up, there are enough extremists on both sides, actually, to upend any fragile accommodation that Morsi might make were he so inclined. Tarek Massoud with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Myanmar, or Burma, has undergone sweeping democratic reforms in the past year. Just this month, President Obama paid a visit. That wouldn't have happened during the near 50 years of military rule. For decades, the Burmese government refused to allow protests. Even signing a petition could have led to prison. All that's changed with the reforms, but a fierce crackdown on protesters at a massive copper mining project last week is raising concerns. Becky Palmstrom visited the protest camps in Manua. The sky over the Chindwin River is streaked with gold. Some 50 people congregate by the riverbank to watch the sunset behind the Lapadang Mountains. If a controversial copper mining project goes forward, these mountains would be destroyed. A man hands out flyers urging others to join the sunset protests. He's one of 20,000 people who signed a petition against the project. Now it's Aung San Suu Kyi's time, and the parliament. And we feel we can finally do things like this. We couldn't before. What started as a land rights and environmental issue affecting local farmers in rural Sagain has spread to the city of Monua, and it's drawn support from monks, activists, and ordinary people across the country. Across the river, protesters have set up six camps at the project site. Uasen Nar is a monk who arrived at this camp last month. In the past, Burmese police have used force against protesting monks. But Uasen Nar refuses to leave until the mining project is abandoned. He says that if the government attacks them, they will bow their heads and suffer. They will express themselves peacefully and without violence, he says. A line of armed police with riot shields is camped out not far from the protesters. They're almost close enough to hear the monks chanting. Down the road are the white gates of the Chinese mining company Wanbao. It's in a joint venture with the Burmese military-owned UMEHL. Neither China nor the military is very popular here, and the companies stand accused of seizing nearly 8,000 acres of land from 26 villages without giving adequate compensation. Some people here do see the mining project as an opportunity. Chipman Thu is an engineer. He agreed to relocate and is now doing a nine-month training program at Wenbao. Older people who work in farming don't want to lose their traditional ways. What will they do for a livelihood? We might face many problems, but the company said they can give us job opportunities, and we're relieved about that. But many felt they had no choice but to give up their homes and land. Technically, the state owns all land here, and Wenbao maintains that it paid villagers a fair price. 
but it was often local authorities negotiating the terms. Ma Enwe's case is typical. About two years ago, she signed a contract she wasn't allowed to read. She got about $600 for what she thought was compensation for three years of lost crops. But it turned out that she signed away her 10 acres to one bow. Now the money is gone and she has no way of earning a living. Stop the mining project completely. For the 26 villages here, this mountain is our life. I want to say please help us. I can't stand it anymore. Ma Enwe was one of hundreds of peaceful protesters who, despite official warnings, slept at the camps last Thursday. Before dawn, the police moved in. First they used water cannons, then they apparently firebombed the sleeping farmers and monks. Witthayd Adama says the robes on his back burnt off. Some of the bombs exploded in the air, shooting flames. Others exploded on the ground. Everything was on fire. I knew the police were going to break up the camp. I just didn't expect it to be so terrible. Local farmers like Ong Mian Tui tried to shield the monks. Now his face is scarred and burnt. He says the bomb separated into small pieces the size of raspberries. Then the bomb exploded into his face, he says. He couldn't see anything. The violent crackdown on the protest camps drew national coverage and condemnation. Aung San Suu Kyi came to Monua and forced the police to apologise. The government initially issued a statement saying excessive force was not used, but retracted that a few hours later. It's ordered two investigations into the violence and the land grab in Monua. The camps are now disbanded, but the protests haven't stopped. For years, the Myanmar government enjoyed absolute control over its citizens. And now that balance of power is shifting. Well, the government seems committed to reform. The events in Monua show that the struggle over democracy is far from over. For The World, I'm Becky Palmstrom, Monua. You can see a slideshow from the protest sites where Burmese monks and farmers were firebombed. It's at theworld.org. And tomorrow we look at why monks are at the forefront of Burma's political protests. Still to come on the program, birds that'll fly a mile for a camel on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Sixty years ago today, an early winter fog descended on the city of London. It lasted for four days. It was so thick that traffic came to a standstill, and the weather was so cold that people burned more coal. The smoke and fog mixed to create what's known as the Great Smog of 1952. As The World's Clark Boyd reports, it brought on thousands of premature deaths. Okay. London and fog have never been what you would call strangers. Charles Dickens put it well in Bleak House, fog everywhere, fog up the river where it flows among green airs and meadows, fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tears of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. And what happened in London in December of 1952? Well, that was about as dirty as you can get. The Great Smog of 1952 was the worst smog that London's ever seen. It's the ultimate pea super, the worst instance the city ever had. Georgina Young is Senior Curator of Contemporary History at the Museum of London. So there's a high-pressure system holding air over the city. 
and there's very little wind and it is very cold. Everyone has their house fire on and at, at that time houses were normally heated by coal fires and the smoke that those produced all went into this pocket there over the city and they were added to by emissions from industries and they're all going into the same pocket of air that's not moving anywhere. A movie-turned cameraman drove through fog-shrouded London to report on the traffic chaos. The great smog invasion has caused a major dislocation of rail services. It's a menace, this choking, eye-watering smog. Iris Humphreys, who was 21 at the time, remembers how dirty it was. You know, we used to wear petticoats and all the hems would be black and their hair was grimy and, and you, you could feel the grit in the air because it was some um, coal smoke, you know, made this heavy fog and, and um, it, was, it was just choking and dreadful. And for some, deadly. Rosemary Merritt was a schoolgirl back in 1952. Her father worked at a London bus garage. He already suffered from bronchitis. Because of transport disruptions, he was forced to walk an hour and a half through the smog to get home. Merritt remembers him walking through the front door. He was not breathing very well and coughing quite a lot. Um, We went to bed and in the middle of the night I was woken by my mum banging like mad on next doors. My father had been taken worse and she was really worried about him because he was going blue apparently. Merritt says the doctor couldn't even make it to their house, so she and her mother tried to go and get medicine for him. We got to the doctors eventually, picked up this tablet, came back home, and we were greeted at the front door by the neighbours that had looked after my dad to tell my mum he'd died. Rosemary Merritt's father was one of more than 4,000 people thought to have died as a result of the Great Smog of 1952. Dr. Robert Waller was working in London's St. Bartholomew's Hospital at the time. It was the combination of cold smoke with sulfur dioxide. People were dying in their homes and in the hospitals. They were mainly elderly people with existing cardiorespiratory disease. No one realised at the time that the numbers of deaths were increasing. There weren't bodies lying around in the streets. One of the first indications that things were happening was that undertakers were running out of coffins. Florists were running out of flowers. After four days, the deadly smog finally cleared. The British government formed a commission to recommend steps to ensure such a thing never happened again. In 1956, Britain's Parliament passed the Clean Air Act. It introduced a number of measures to cut down on the burning of coal. But today, on the 60th anniversary of the Great Smog, some say that London still has significant pollution problems. The environmental organization Client Earth said today that an estimated 4,300 Londoners now die each year as a result of air pollution. The culprit now isn't coal, the group says, but vehicle emissions. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. You got to check out these London landmarks in the Toxic Haze. We have some great picks from the Great Smog of 1952, all at theworld.org. President Obama is expected to make some changes in his cabinet and diplomatic corps for his second term, and there's talk of a possible new U.S. ambassador in London. Now, most American ambassadors are Foreign Service veterans, but some of the plum postings go to a president's prominent supporters. One such name being mentioned for a London or Paris posting is the editor of Vogue, Anna Wintour. From New York, here's the world's Alex Galifant. I don't know anything about fashion, really. 
My taste in ties will tell you that. But before I leave New York, I'd love to get an Anna Wintour sighting. See, in this city, she's a near-mythical creature with certain inalienable attributes: the sunglasses, the bob haircut, and the soul of an ice queen who would rather chop off your head than let you wear those pants. There is something about fashion that can make people very nervous. Yes, people like me, and probably people like the leaders of North Korea and Iran too. That's where President Obama should send Anna Wintour, if anywhere. But if it's to be the U.S. Embassy in London, all right, let's think that through. The clip just then was from a documentary called *The September Issue*. It's about how Wintour and her team put together an edition of *American Vogue*. Here's another bit where she's answering a plea from the CEO of Neiman Marcus to press designers to supply more stock and more quickly. And you know, fashion is fun, and we all love it, and that's what drives it. But without it the goods, without the goods, and the ads in your magazines are fabulous. But you've got to help us with this, so. No, I think you said something very interesting about which is editing, and I think some of the designers do have a problem with that. And we are working on that, and we will certainly we're right there with you. Less is more. I hear you. I understand you. Here's what I can do, even if it's not quite what you wanted. Kapow! Diplomacy. Anna Wintour may be the queen of fashion, but she's no Project Runway dope. We're not all dipsticks and airheads. Lisa Armstrong is fashion editor of the UK's Daily Telegraph newspaper. This morning, she spoke with a BBC interviewer about Anna Wintour. She is formidable, and she has been in the past, I think, quite scary. Although she seems to have mellowed quite a lot, but formidable is is probably good. Good. So you、Isn't、could、it? see her. Do you think this would be a good appointment?、Uh, well, it. it <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. It's a risky business making public comments about Anna Wintour, especially if you work in fashion. Actually, Armstrong went on to say that if nothing else, Wintour has proved herself a consummate businesswoman. But is that all she has to recommend her as ambassador? Here's Sarah Churchwell, an American academic working in the UK. What she would bring to it is not just business savvy, but an understanding of the cult of personality that is what drives Obama's popularity globally. Okay, and don't forget that she was born in Britain. She could like translate. One of the things that Americans are famous for getting wrong is misreading British culture and and not always understanding the finer points of interpersonal relations and and questions of tact. That's probably true, although of course one would never say it out loud. Of course, this is just speculation right now. Who's up and who's down in the next Obama administration? Who cares about his first term anyway? Fashion's not about looking back. It's always about looking forward. It's all about next season. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. So what else? This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, we mourn the passing of jazz pianist Dave Brubeck, and we hear how he loved to be on the road. He continued to tour as tirelessly and as enthusiastically as he did right up until a year or so ago. He really never lost his passion for reaching audiences all over the world. PRI's "The World" is supported by Medtronic. Demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report online at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Cervical cancer used to kill more women in the U.S. than any other cancer. Today, deaths are rare here, not so in developing countries where the disease remains a major killer. Scientists have developed an inexpensive procedure that could dramatically change that situation. But convincing women to undergo the procedure, there's the challenge. Joanne Silberner has the third installment in our series on cancer in the developing world. In India each year, tens of thousands of women die from cervical cancer. And just about every single death is preventable with early detection. In the U.S., what's reduced deaths to near zero is a decades-old test called a pap smear. But in India... It's just not possible for us to provide as frequently as it is done in the West. That's Dr. Surendra Shastri. He's a cancer specialist at Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai. He says the pap test requires trained personnel and well-equipped labs, which many parts of India don't have. So what do we do? We can't let the women die. It turns out there may be a simple answer. It's a cheap and easy test developed by scientists at Johns Hopkins University and other institutions. It relies on something you probably have in your kitchen. I came to the village of Durvan in the Indian state of Maharashtra to see how it works. Dr. Archana Saunke is at a temporary clinic in the shell of an empty store. We have our old examination table, and also we have our trolley. An old exam table, a trolley to hold the sterile equipment used for the exam. A sheet hangs from the ceiling to provide some privacy. There's no electricity, not even a light bulb in the storefront. About a dozen Muslim women in headscarves are here. One is on the exam table, her long brown skirt pushed aside. With her friends sitting nearby, she looks calm and ready. Dr. Sanke takes a cotton swab and applies a clear liquid to the woman's cervix. We wait for one minute and we see that if there is any patch, yellowish patch is there. If the liquid makes the normally pink cervix turn white or yellow, that means there are precancerous cells, cells that could someday become cancer. Within a minute or two, the doctor has some good news for her patient. Yeah, it's normal. Normal. The woman smiles broadly. When tests yield bad news and show precancerous cells, those can be removed on the spot. Just one squirt of liquid nitrogen. No return trip needed. So what is this clear liquid Dr. Sanke applied? Acetic acid. Acetic acid, common household vinegar. The tests being done here are part of a trial program being run by Tata Memorial Hospital and Walla Walker Hospital, where Dr. Subana Patil is medical director. She says when the vinegar test was first brought to the villages, women were not interested, even though it was free. Whenever we used to go to their houses, they used to shut the doors. No, we don't want. You go away. She says many women found testing a bother. They were embarrassed to have a vaginal exam. And for what? They didn't even think cancer could be treated. India being a country of high and low-tech solutions, Patil sent out health workers with computers loaded up with PowerPoint presentations. They put up posters around town and performed plays. They talked to students in schools and village leaders. But Patil says still the women wouldn't come. Muslim ladies, they will never come because it's their culture. Even Indian ladies, they are very shy. So first what we did is we appointed our female staff. The staff got awareness training. They were taught to test not just for cervical cancer, but for high blood pressure and diabetes and other diseases women were worried about. That got women in the door. Then it was a matter of time. 
Patil says it made a big difference when women saw other women actually beat cancer. Now they are seeing the results because if the cancer is picked up in early condition, the patient is doing well. Now people are coming to us and telling us, please arrange a cancer screening camp for our ladies. But it took eight years. (laughs) It was so difficult. It's evident that those eight years have paid off. Back at the temporary testing clinic, 40-year-old Sujata Sanjay Kapriel had her exam this morning. It was normal. She's happy she had the test. She's saying that screening is better because if we can screen, then we come to know if we are suffering from the particular disease or not. And if we have the disease, then we can cure it. The vinegar technique has been adopted in several countries now, and there's another more expensive test for cervical cancer that some say may eventually prove to be even better. These tests could save the lives of tens of thousands of women in India for years to come, as long as public health workers can convince women to use them. For The World, I'm Joanne Silberner, Durvan, India. Our series on cancer was produced with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. You'll find a lot more online. Watch the story of Victoria Contreras. She sells food on the streets of Lima, Peru. When she developed breast cancer, she found support from a local group called The Breast Club. You can watch that story and find much more at theworld.org slash cancer. And tune in tomorrow for Joanne Silberner's next report. In developing countries, cancer often starts with a virus or other infection. Scientists say this provides an opening. If you know an infection is a cause of cancer, if you attack the infection, you can actually prevent the cancer. That's our next story from Cancer's New Battleground, tomorrow on The World. Today's GeoQuiz has a rich, dark red character with a complex taste. Now, that's because police in Italy have a new and puzzling case to investigate. $16 million worth of red wine, enough to fill about 80,000 bottles, has been sabotaged. The wine is among Italy's most celebrated varieties. We're looking for the name of the small hill town in Tuscany where the crime went down. It's about 70 miles south of Florence, where the warm air and dry soil is perfect for growing a special variety of the Sangiovese grape. It takes years to properly age the best wines from this little Tuscan town, but we're not waiting around to uncork the answer to our quiz today. Carla Capalbo lives in Italy and writes about Italian wine and food. So, Carla, just the facts, ma'am. What do we know about what actually happened? Okay, the area where this happened uh, is one of the absolute premium winemaking areas in Italy. It's the village of Montalcino, and the wine in question, which is called Brunello di Montalcino, is really, um, I would say, Italy's most prestigious wine. It's the wine that if you were ever going to give a great bottle to someone as a Christmas present, this is the one you'd go for. So Montalcino is the answer to the GeoQuiz. We've solved the GeoQuiz, but there's still a lot about this case that we haven't solved. What did these saboteurs actually do? How did they pull this off? Well, the police haven't revealed any of that. Um, all I can tell you is what I've heard is this, that somebody, one or more people, we don't know, broke into the small cellar of Gianfranco Soldera. And we're talking about, this is the countryside. You know, he has a beautiful vineyard all around it and amazing. His wife has one of the greatest collections of old roses in the world. You know, it's a very rural setting. And you would have to know exactly where you were going to get into there and to find his cellar, which is sort of in the middle of his vineyards. And they broke in, apparently broke through shatterproof glass, 
And what they did, uh, which is really kind of unbelievable, is that they opened up the faucets, their little tiny faucets, on each of these big barrels and just let the wine drain away into the drains and ultimately into the sewer. It's kind of got vendetta written all over it. What, what are the theories as to why this happened or, or who did it? I would agree with you. I think that this is a, this is a crime that is so personalized and vicious it does suggest a kind of personal vendetta. I mean, I would have absolutely no idea of who or why would they would do this, but there has been a lot of controversy up in Montalcino in the past few years between the old school of people who felt that Brunello should remain a 100% Sangiovese wine, and certainly Soldera is one of those. And then there were other companies who were pushing to uh, allow, you know, more mellow sort of grapes like Merlo into the blend. And so there's been quite a lot of fighting going on about that. However, it doesn't explain this. I mean, I have to say that when we first heard of this, the, the thing that jumped to my mind was the image from the godfather of the man who wakes up with his horse's head in his bed. Right. It's that personal. Have you ever heard a story like this before involving wine? I haven't personally, although yesterday I was at a, a meeting with another a group of wine writers, and they said that in France, in the old days, some pretty terrible things happened in, <laughs> in various areas. I don't know that anybody's ever heard of anything quite as horrible as this. Could it be a vendetta from another vintner? I mean, somebody who just felt the swine just has too much quality and we need to get into the market? I don't know. I, you know, my personal hunch, having lived in Italy for a long time, is that there's probably some obscure force at work behind all this. And it's a form of, of punishment for something. Uh, and yet, you know, nobody can quite imagine what, except, as I said, possibly this controversy about the traditionalists who really wanted to keep Sangiovese pure and the people who had commercial interests and therefore wanting to make wines that are definitely more accessible by adding these uh, so-called international varieties. And actually, the traditionalists recently won and it seems as if there is not going to be any more discussion about changing the, the, the sort of recipe for Brunello. But whether that's at the heart of it, I'm afraid I really, you know, your guess is as good as mine. So there is no, from you know, there will be no, his winery is called Case Basse, which means the low houses. And there will be no Case Basse, Brunello. He's been totally wiped out. Carla Capalbo writes about food and wine and has been telling us about the sabotage of Brunello di Montalcino. Carla, thank you very much. You're very welcome, and let's hope they figure out very quickly who did this and why so that it doesn't happen to anybody else again. The pioneering jazz musician Dave Brubeck died today of heart failure. He was one day shy of his 92nd birthday. Brubeck and his quartet produced a sound that helped define jazz in the 50s and 60s with pieces like Take Five, written by the group's sax player, Paul Desmond. Take Five was the first jazz instrumental to sell more than a million copies. It epitomized modern jazz for a generation. Dave Brubeck's music was known all over the world. In fact, during the Cold War, he introduced his music, American music, to places that did not have diplomatic ties with the U.S. Nate Chenin is a jazz critic for the New York Times. He says Brubeck was a cultural ambassador for the United States. There was a program that was affiliated and run by the U.S. State Department, 
And it was basically predicated on this idea that jazz was the perfect cultural export and a great example of principles that you know America wanted to get behind, freedom, democracy. And so jazz became a major part of the campaign to essentially win hearts and minds behind the Iron Curtain and, and in other places in the world. And he actually went behind the Iron Curtain. He went to places like Russia and the USSR and Poland. That's right. In, in 1958, he actually performed in Iraq at a time that coups broke out. So, you know, these people were very much right in the thick of things. He was also traveling with Louis Armstrong, so it was kind of like uh, all-stars on the road. Yeah, they did dovetail a bit. They each were sent out on these various diplomatic missions, but there was some contact. And later, Brubeck took it upon himself to write a kind of jazz opera called The Real Ambassadors, in which he, he gave Armstrong a starring role. And it was Brubeck's response to this idea that jazz was being promoted as a symbol of American democracy, but there were all these little sort of bureaucratic kinks, along with the big fact of segregation still being a part of the experience at home. Well, we actually have a little taste of The Real Ambassadors we can offer our listeners. Let's, uh, let's listen to that. Yeah, I remember when Diz was in Greece back in 57. He did such a good job, we started sending jazz all over the world. The voice of Louis Armstrong there. Um, Nate Chinon, what about Dave Brubeck's uh, piece, Blue Rondo a la Turk? Uh, did it have anything to do with his traveling in Turkey? You know, I've actually heard that he was inspired by Turkish musicians that he heard on the street. I'm presuming that's at home. But it very much is an instance of his picking up on, you know, world rhythms, forms that come from a non-Western point of view. The song is famously in a 9-8 meter and has a little bit of an uneven kind of lurching quality that isn't what we usually hear from mainstream Western classical music or jazz. And so it made for a really dramatic opening to the landmark album Time Out. amazing that, first of all, he continued to tour as tirelessly and as enthusiastically as he did right up until a year or so ago. And he really never lost his passion for reaching audiences all over the world. He was one of the most sincere performers I think I've met. He really did want to be on the road and want to be bringing music to as many people as he could. Nate Shannon, jazz critic with the New York Times, thanks very much for speaking to us today about Dave Brubeck. My pleasure. Brubeck's modern jazz sound also inspired artists in Jamaica, always on the hunt for new things. So here's a little treat for you listeners, a ska version of Take 5, performed in Kingston, Jamaica in 1968 by instrumentalist Val Bennett. His and our tip of the hat to the great Dave Brubeck. Thank you. 
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Leaving smoked cigarettes around your living room may not sound like a good idea for interior decoration, not to mention the smell. But birds, it turns out, don't share that sensibility. Some species use cigarette butts to line their nests. A new study published in the journal Biology Letters suggests the practice may actually help those that live in the nests. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has a story. The study was done in Mexico City in two species of birds house sparrows, and house finches. Ecologist Constantino Macias-Garcia and a team of students looked at 80 nests on the campus of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Macias-Garcia says in every nest, birds had used cigarette butts as a building material. It is a very prevalent phenomenon. They are regularly using them. However, the birds didn't use the cigarette butts intact. They extracted the cellulose fibers and the filters and wove the fibers through the twigs and branches. So why do birds use this seemingly repulsive material full of nicotine and other chemicals in their homes? Macias Garcia wondered if it was serving a protective purpose. After all, nicotine is a well-known insect repellent, and bird nests are often full of harmful parasites like mites and lice. So once the finch and sparrow fledglings had left their nests, Macias Garcia and his team took many of the nests down. They then measured the amount of cellulose fibers as a proxy for the amount of nicotine in each nest, and they counted the number of parasites in each nest. The more cellulose there was in the nest, the fewer parasites we found in those nests. The parasites apparently disliked the nicotine-filled fibers. Dale Clayton is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Utah. He says the use of fibers from cigarette butts could be an urban version of a behavior observed elsewhere in other bird species. Clayton says birds like starlings line their nests with certain aromatic plants. Which emit volatile chemicals that appear to kill ectoparasites like lice and mites uh, and also bacteria. He says the chemicals in the plants are also thought to boost the immune systems of chicks so they're better able to fight parasites. Clayton says the behavior has probably evolved because of obvious advantages to the survival of the species. But he cautions that the authors of the new study don't show that cigarette butts ultimately benefit the species. What they need to show now is that the impact on mites actually does increase the reproductive success of the birds. And then there's the question of whether the cigarette butts may also be causing harm. Again, study author Constantino Macias-Garcia. Cigarette butts contain about 100 substances that are added to the cigarettes or that come with the nicotine. And many of those substances are toxic. So the positive effect of the nicotine could well be outweighed by the negative effects of other chemicals. That's something he wants to investigate next. For the world... I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Finally today, let me remind you of one of Mexico's most celebrated artists ever, a black singer named Tonya La Negra. This month is the centennial of her birth, as Beto Arcos tells us. Antonia del Carmen Peregrino Álvarez was born into a family of musicians in the port city of Veracruz on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. She started singing at social events, music competitions, and carnivals at an early age. The name Tonya La Negra came later.
1932, when she was 20, she moved with her husband and child to Mexico City. It wasn't long before she was discovered by the star maker of the day, radio station XEW. Inició sus labores XEW. La voz de la América Latina desde México. She began singing at a place called El Retiro. That was like the hip place to, to be for, for Bolero in, in Mexico City. Veracruz writer Rafael Figueroa just published a book on Toña la Negra. It was the, close by the Plaza de Toros, the, the bullfight ring, and everybody who was anybody was there. The owner of XCW saw her and, and you know, asked her to be part of the lineup of, of XCW. Soon after, Toña La Negra met one of Mexico's biggest songwriters, Agustín Lara, and her career took off. Legend has it that Lara was the one who named her Toña La Negra. He wrote songs especially for her, such as this one, Lamento Jarocho. Rafael Figueroa says Lara found his muse in Toña la Negra, and she became the vehicle for his musical exploration of the black contribution to Mexican culture. And he acknowledged that not only by naming Toña la Negra Toña the black one or the black woman, but also by composing a lot of uh, you know music based on the black uh, Caribbean influence of culture to, to Veracruz. So he began like a whole book of, of compositions devoted to, you know, the blackness of Veracruz of, and, of course, of Mexico. From the early 1930s to the mid-50s, Doña La Negra focused on performing, making records and radio shows. But she also appeared in more than 20 films as a performer and as an actor. Here she is in a nightclub scene in the 1943 film, Mario well, of course, for us in Veracruz, Toña La Negra is the singer of the 20th century. That's it, without, without discussion. The miracle is that she never really did any promotion of herself or anything. She didn't give interviews or anything. It was just the power of her voice. That, that was it. And Rafael Figueroa says her voice retains that power. 100 years after her birth, people are still listening to Toña La Negra. En estas noches de frío, de duro cierzo invernal, llegan hasta el cuarto mío las quejas de la raba. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos. En estas noches de frío, de duro cierzo invernal, llegan hasta el cuarto mío las quejas de la raba. And what a voice at Tonya La Negra. That's our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. Arrancame la vida con el último beso de amor. 
Ay, arráncala y toma, toma mi corazón Arráncame la vida The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International